Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day. Nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in. From this time forth and even forevermore. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord God, keeper of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, keep thy people, that we be not burned by day nor struck by night. Defend us from the scandals and idolatry of this world. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father who made heaven and earth. Glory be to the Son who is the shade upon our right hand. Glory be to the Holy Ghost who shall keep our soul as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, it says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here we have two parallel movements. The work of God that was realized in the Lord Jesus when he was led out from the dead in Hebrews 13.25, and the work of God that must be realized in Christians if they are to do God's will. These two movements are framed by the invocative of God, the God of peace and at the beginning by the doxology directed to God at the end. It's the second movement in this passage that I would like to highlight this morning, that God works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Now, Satan works to have us focus on future troubles in an effort to neglect our present duty today and then be unprepared for future trials when they come. And as the Puritan William Gurnall writes, the less rest the soul has in God now, the less strength it will find to bear trials when the pinch comes. We all know that trials are a function of if and not when. So I exhort you to take comfort in this. Number one, that every event is the product of God's providence. Not a sparrow falls, much less a saint, to poverty, sickness, or persecution, but that the hand of God is in it. Number two, God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In that promise, we can rest with assurance that God will teach us everything we need to know. He will equip us and strengthen us to bear it all for the sake of Christ. And number three, God in his divine wisdom 
conceals the comforts he intends to give us at the various stages of our lives so that he may encourage our hearts to full dependence upon his faithful promises now. Christian, we are to regard every aspect of our lives as an expression of our worship to God. So the exhortation at the end of Hebrew 12, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, finds its culmination in the assurance that God will bless his people through Jesus Christ, creating in us what is pleasing in his sight. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. Though we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Please remain standing for our sermon text this morning. I'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll read verses 4 through 9. These are the words of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy to us. We thank you for the gift of your Son, for our salvation. We thank you for the grace that you've poured, up, poured upon us and our children in innumerable ways. Father, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word this morning, that you would convict where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage where we need to be encouraged. And we ask all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, thank you for having us down. Thank you to Pastor Ventura for inviting me to come down and preach. It's been almost a year, I think, since I was last down here, and it is really wonderful uh, to be down here and seeing the church continue to grow, see lots of um, old familiar faces and a lot of new faces, a lot of people I, I don't know, which is exciting, it's just wonderful. So thank you for having us down. I bring you greetings from uh, Trinity Church. We do pray for you guys regularly. You're in our, our regular rotation of um, uh, church bodies that we pray for. We are excited when we hear about things going on down here. Um, we just love the work that God is doing in our state um, down the I-5 corridor and excited to just join with you all in the work of building the kingdom. My family loves to tell a story about one of my brothers uh, in his mid-teen years. This is a story that um, if you've spent much time with my dad, he, you may have heard this story before. This uh, brother of mine was particularly downcast one time when he heard that my dad was going to be out of town for a few days. And uh, again, he's in his mid-teens, probably, mid probably early high school. Um, and when, when he was asked why, and what I can't remember about the story is this, there's, there's different accounts of the story. It was either just at home, or it might have been actually with um, some coworkers of his. He was working at a pizza place at the time, and he was, you know, saying, oh, man, I'm really bummed my dad's going to be out of town. And, 
And he was asked why, and he just admitted, I'm just really bummed because when my dad goes out of town, I can't smoke or drink. If that strikes you as odd, it should. What kind of a home is like that? What kind of a home is like it where the, the things that met much of our Christian culture think are forbidden are actually um, invited in as part of the grace of the home? Right? These things that we tend to think of as, even if they're not, they're not sinful, but they may be things that are, um, we, we want to really wait on and we really wanna, um, we're really, really careful with. But instead, a home in which there is grace and loyalty and trust where um, this, this son, in normally what's considered the rebellious years, is instead bummed that his dad is leaving because he can't pursue those things that normally would be forbidden all across the board, but he, he actually gets those things when his dad is home, and he doesn't get those things when his dad is not home. This is a home that is full of grace. That's, a, that's just a very small example, but I think it's a really poignant example of the kind of grace that should saturate Christian homes. It's the kind of grace that should saturate our lives as we are raising up our children, as we're living in the grace of God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he died and was raised from the dead for our sins, and he now reigns as king over heaven and earth. This good news ought to cause great joy and great gladness and great thanksgiving in Christian homes, and it should be palpable. Homes filled with this aroma of grace will also be homes which are marked with strong family loyalty as the individuals grow in their love for the Lord together. If it's really true, this grace that we have been given, if it's really true that we as individuals have been given grace by God in salvation through Jesus Christ, and then you put a bunch of those individuals in a home together, it ought to affect the flavor and the aroma of that home. That home should be saturated with this kind of grace. Like many things, this loyalty in the home is a grace that is first given and then cultivated. It's first given, just like John says in 1 John, we love, him, we love him because he first loved us. So it's a grace that is first given. It's not something we can come up with on our own. It's something that is given to us, but then it's also cultivated, and that's what we see here in Deuteronomy 6. Moses instructs the people, you shall diligently teach these words to your children. And what are those words that they are to diligently teach to their children? It's all summed up in, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with your heart, with your soul, and with your strength. This is a grace that is first given and then it is cultivated. So the title for this sermon is Loyalty in Covenant Homes. What I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time of, uh, talking about the covenant home, talking about what that um, looks like from Scripture, what we ought to expect it to look like, and then give some principles to then apply to our homes. How do we cultivate the kind of loyalty that Deuteronomy assumes? The kind of loyalty within the home that Deuteronomy calls us to. This is true um, for um, uh, families where you have lots of kids still at home. This is also true for if you don't have kids at home, part of being the body of Christ and the family loyalty that there should be in the church as well. 
So let's begin by um, thinking about this idea of God's covenant promises to his people. God promised to Abraham by covenant that he would be God to him and to his descendants. We see this most clearly, I think, in, in Genesis chapter 17. I'll just read this to you. Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. This is God speaking to Abraham and the promise that he gives to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God's promise to Abraham was that he would be his God and the God of his descendants. Now we know from the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, again, Paul makes this uh, most, I think, most clearly stated there, that those who are descendants of Abraham are not descendants by blood, but primarily they're descendants by faith. Those who have the faith of Abraham are called the sons of Abraham. And they, these sons of Abraham, Paul says that they are heirs according to the promise. Those who have the faith of Abraham are heirs. They, are in, they inherit the promises that were given to Abraham. Those promises are what we just read. That he would be God to Abraham and to his children. And that he would give them the land of Canaan, which then in the New Testament, Paul indicates that it's expanded to the whole world because Jesus is king over all the earth. That's what's given to the descendants of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham. What I think is particularly striking about this is you could make, if you were trying to, um, you could make the argument that what Paul is saying, that those who are descendants of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham, means that Abraham, and, and for us as Christians, we really should only expect to have spiritual descendants who receive these promises, and so if I go and I evangelize somebody, that, that might be my spiritual son who then receives the promises of Abraham. And that's true, but there's a way of thinking about this that excludes the, the real possibility and the norm of um, biological children receiving the covenant promises of God. The problem with that is then in Ephesians 6, when Paul gives instructions to fathers he tells them to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And he's not talking about their spiritual children, their, their non-biological children. He's talking about the people, the little kids that are living in their homes. Paul tells the Ephesians that they are to train those children in God's ways. They're to train them in the paideia, the enculturation, and the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul basically assumes that those who are in covenant homes, those who are in homes where the parents are in covenant with God, are to receive the promises of God. Peter alludes to this as well in Acts chapter 2 when he says, um, when he's preaching and he says, the, the promises the promises to you and to your children. This is really riddled through all of scripture where God expects the, the, the descendants of those that he has made covenant with to follow him. And that he expects to provide that grace to them, to pour out that grace upon them. Now, there is, of course, a great warning that comes along, along with this. We must be very careful not to presume upon the promises of God for our children. We are not to presume that there's some sort of automatic way that if somebody is born into a Christian home, they automatically become a Christian just by virtue of being born in that home. But at the same time, 
Christian parents are to believe God's promises for their children. Not to presume upon those promises, but to believe on them, to stand on them, to rest in those promises, and to look for God to fulfill what he has said that he would do. Christian parents believe God's promises to be their God, and then they obey God by training their children to follow Jesus. One of the ways that we do this, again, is by cultivating loyalty in the home. Christian parents, beginning with fathers, really should imitate Joshua. When Joshua said at the end of the book of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Christian parents, and especially fathers, should lead their homes in such a way that they are saying regularly, in this home, we follow the Lord Jesus. So let's go. This is who we are. We are the hatchers, and we follow Jesus. Let's go. This is, this is the way in which parents... And again, particularly fathers should be leading their families. Now, how can I say that? Is that, is that something that we can see from Scripture? Well, we have the example of Joshua. First, uh, like I mentioned, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But then here in this passage in Deuteronomy, I think we're invited to see the same kind of thing. So again, Deuteronomy 6. Let me just read this again to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, Those of you that uh, were here when I was preaching through Ephesians, as I came down to visit you all, are very familiar with the idea that the first half of Ephesians is all about things to be believed, and the second half is all about things to be done, right? Credenda, the things to be believed. Agenda, the things to be done. Well, in here in Deuteronomy 6, we have the same kind of thing. Here's the, here's the the thing to be believed, the primary thing to be believed. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's verse 4. Then verse 5, you shall love the Lord with the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the thing to be done. The primary thing for Christians to be, to be believed is that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the primary thing for Christians to, for them to, to do is to love him with everything they are and everything they have. But Moses doesn't stop there. So he begins by saying, here's the thing to be believed, here's the thing to be done, and then... Verse 6, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Okay, so individually, you, you receive this, you believe it, you stand on it, you practice it. And then, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. That, uh, the, the word there for to teach diligently in the Hebrew um, can also be understood as, or it's the same word that's used to describe sharpening, like to wet a knife, to sharpen a knife. You're to be teaching your children over and over and over. That repetition, that repetitious movement that sharpens a knife is the same kind of teaching that you give to your children. Over and over and over and over again. Teaching them what? Teaching them that the Lord their God is one and that they are to love him with everything they are and everything they have. And so in a Christian home, this, the primary loyalty that we are after is loyalty to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This love for God, this loyalty to Him and His ways is to be taught and passed on by parents to their children. If you stop for a moment and think about that, um, there, there's something else about this that's very striking. Moses says that we are to love the Lord our God, and then you're to teach that to your children. Love is something that is taught. And we don't think of it that way. Love is something that we feel primarily in the way that we tend to think about it. 
maybe we, we might even say love is something that you're, you're to do. It's an action. But love is also something that is taught. Love, the loves that your children have is something that is taught by you, shaped by you, informed by you as you lead them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Love for God is to be taught in the home, but it is taught not just by giving the right Bible lesson. And this is what Moses gets at here. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. In everything that you're doing, you're to be teaching your children what it means to love the Lord. So it's not just that you're to teach this love for God in your homes by having good devotions, although that's good, by having regular family worship, although that's good, but it's far, it, 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 it saturates everything that you do. Everything that you do is part of teaching your children to love the Lord with everything they are and everything they have because you believe that God has said he would be their God. And so as with all of this in mind then, I want to give you four principles to put into practice in training your children, to training the children of our churches in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There are more principles that we could draw out from this text, but there's four that I want to meditate on this morning. So here's the first one. The first one is eat together. Moses tells uh, at the beginning of this chapter in Deuteronomy 6, he tells the people to keep God's commandments so that they may prosper as they inherit the land. And he adds this little tag on to inherit the land, this land which is flowing with milk and honey. So this, is what, this is what Moses says in verses one, 1 and 2. 1, 2, and 3. I'll just read 2 and 3. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson. So this generational thinking. All the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. Okay, so worship God, follow him, keep his commandments, fear him so that the days of your life and your son and your grandson will be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you. And then here's that tag on, a land flowing with milk and honey. God's uh, commands to keep covenant, to fear him, are given in the context of sweet, rich food. In part, keeping covenant with God and communicating the truths of his word to the next generation is done in the context of giving and enjoying the blessings of the table with your family. The traditions of eating together are one of the most natural ways to cultivate loyalty. We live in a society that um, for for decades now has really um, divided the family at mealtimes. It's just not something that is uh, regularly practiced in the, most of our culture. And I imagine in, in this church, many of you are practicing eating together regularly. But I think it's worth remembering, worth being reminded of, that it is, it is part of the way in which you build loyalty in your home to simply sit around the table, take time out of your day to sit with your family and eat together. There is something really natural in the way that God has created the world about being around a table, sharing food together, sharing conversation together, sharing fellowship together with all of the messes that that brings, especially if you have little kids, all of the craziness that mealtime brings. 
But there's something very natural about that that builds loyalty within the home. Here's one of the reasons why I think that's so key. Your table fellowship, you know, whether it's breakfast or dinner, but if you're doing this every day, and whether or not you do it every day, you're, you're teaching your kids something, but the way in which you fellowship around the table is both informed by and informative for your table fellowship at the Lord's table. Right? Every Sunday you come here to the communion table and you partake of the bread and wine and you feast with King Jesus at his table. How has your table fellowship throughout the week been informed by that fellowship at this table? This table is a table of grace. You come as a sinner. You come as a sinner in need of salvation. You come as a sinner trusting in the grace of God. And you come and he freely gives you his body, his blood, to nourish you, to feed you, to have union with you, to invite you to himself. Is your table fellowship informed by that? Is the way that you gather with your family at the dinner table, whether it's just a couple, whether it's a large family, whether it's a group of families together, is your table fellowship informed by the way in which Jesus invites you to his table? And, and on the other hand, the way in which you gather with your family actually teaches your family about what Jesus is doing here. You're either teaching them rightly or you're teaching them wrongly. If your table fellowship is characterized by bitterness and, and snipping at one another and blowing up when there are messes, that's what you're teaching them that Jesus is like. If your table fellowship is almost non-existent because you're too busy, because things are, um, it's too hard, it's too exhausting to have that kind of fellowship around the table, well, then you're teaching your family it's too exhausting for Jesus to invite you. But, but that's not the Lord we serve. What is the relational aroma at your dinner table on Thursday night? You are teaching your children what it is like to sit at the Lord's table on Sunday. These things go together. So that's the first principle in terms of building covenant loyalty in the home for the purpose of bringing our families to follow the Lord, to love him with everything we are and everything we have. The first principle I think we have from, from Deuteronomy, keeping this covenant in a land flowing with milk and honey, have, faith, have table fellowship together, eat together. The second principle is to keep short accounts. Part of teaching how to follow Christ in everything that we are and everything that we do, how to, how to love the Lord with our heart, soul, and strength, is also teaching our children and our families, teaching one another, what to do when we fall short of that command. And so we're told, love the Lord with everything, in every time, um, in, in all circumstances, love him with everything you are and everything you have. Well, what do I do when I don't do that? We all know that that's not true. Of a, we, we don't accomplish that. We regularly fall short. We regularly disobey what God has called us to do in terms of loving him. So what do I do when I sin in this way? In a house full of sinners, there will be sin. 
and a house full of sinners, there will be sin as God continues to work in and through us to sanctify us and draw us more to himself. But the sin can be and should be quickly addressed and confessed. And forgiveness quickly and readily and joyfully, freely given. Parents lead the way in this by being quick to confess their own sins. Which is one of the hardest things that you, I think, do as a parent. Parents fall short of this command to love the Lord their God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they fall short of that command in front of their children all the time. Whether it's directly to their children, you sin sin against your children in some way, you're impatient with them, you're short with them. Or whether it's with your spouse and the kids see it. Or whether it's with the neighbor and the kids see it. In a variety, all kinds of ways, we fall short of this command to love God with our heart, soul, and strength. So what do we teach our children to do when that happens? Well, we confess it to them. We confess it to the Lord. We admit and acknowledge the sin. We name the sin according to what God has said. We acknowledge it to be wrong according to his standards. And then we ask for forgiveness from those that we have wronged. We've wronged God first and foremost. But when we've wronged our children or children, when you've wronged your parents or you've wronged your siblings, what ought to happen is you go, you confess it to the Lord, and then you go and make it right with that person to restore fellowship with them. And parents that do this and, and, and do this and practice this show their children that our home is a place in which it is safe and right to admit to having done wrong in order to restore fellowship. If you as a parent are not confessing your sin to your children, why do you think they will come and confess their sin to you? If you have not led them in this way, don't expect them to follow you. Seeking forgiveness rightly really is among the hardest things that we do. But this is part of teaching our children what it means to follow Christ. We need to, we need to demonstrate by our own lives how we, what we do, how we do it when we disobey God's law. Like a garden that is cultivated and tended by pulling weeds, so loyalty in a Christian home will grow where repentance and forgiveness are frequently practiced. When repentance and forgiveness are not frequently practiced, well, then the home gets gunked up. Tensions build, relationships remain strained, even if you can kind of bury it under the rug for a time. What, what happens is the loyalty in the home becomes to tear apart. Loyalty in the home becomes frayed. And if loyalty in the home is being frayed, Again, this is informing your children what it means to love the Lord. So keep short accounts. Confess your sin. Name the sin directly. Name it according to God's standards. Confess it to God. Confess it to those that you have wronged. So first principle, eat together. Second principle, keep short accounts. Third principle, apply the grace of discipline. Part of this principle of keeping short accounts is recognizing that corporal discipline, bodily, physical discipline administered faithfully is grace. 
when parents discipline their children, when parents spank their children or uh, administer other kinds of physical discipline, when it's done faithfully, when it's done rightly, it should not be seen as, by the parent or the child, as punishment. It should be seen as discipline, and discipline is grace. Let me, where do we see this in Scripture? Here's one place. There's a number of different places, but one place to look at is just after this uh, exhortation in, in Deuteronomy 6, in Deuteronomy 8, this is what Moses says. I'll start in verse 2. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Moses is writing, the book of Deuteronomy comes at the end of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness because they refused to obey God and go into the land. And Moses says that these 40 years in the wilderness were a time of discipline, a time of chastening where God is training them, testing them to see what was in their heart. (coughs) But this discipline was not a punishment upon the people in, in one sense. It was rather a chastening because of God's love for his children. He chastened them as a father chastens his children, as he demonstrates his love for his children. This is what discipline should be like in our homes. Spanking and other forms of correction must be wielded by a parent who is spiritual. Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that you who are spiritual restore those who have strayed, those who are in sin, in a spirit of gentleness. Okay? Uh, discipline in the home is necessary. Discipline in the home is necessary because if you are not disciplining your children when they sin, you actually are disciplining them. You are training them that that kind of behavior is, is okay before the Lord. So discipline is necessary, but discipline must be done by someone who is spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual? It means to be right with God. It means to be right with the Holy Spirit. And so discipline can never be done out of anger. Discipline can never be done out of impatience. Discipline can never be done out of a lack of self-control on behalf of the parent. And that is so hard. Right? Some child is acting out and they're really out of self-control. And the parent comes in and says, why don't you have self-control? And the natural response for the child, aside from being terrified, ought to be something like, I don't see self-control. Right? As a parent, you're not demonstrating self-control to them. You're not spiritual. Be right with God first. Be under control. Be patient. Because God is patient with you when he disciplines you. Be spiritual. Be right with God before you go and address the sin that your child has committed. Proverbs tells us that he who spares the rod hates his son, but that love is shown through swift discipline. Love is shown through swift discipline. Discipline should be regular. It should be consistent. It should be judicious. And it should be based on God's word. 
The goal of discipline is not to punish wrongdoing. The goal of discipline is not simply to form behavior, but rather discipline, the goal of discipline is to restore fellowship that is broken by disobedience. Fellowship is broken when we disobey God. Fellowship is broken when we are unkind to one another, when there is lying in the home. Whatever the sin is, when fellowship is broken, the point of discipline is to restore fellowship. And so every discipline session should end with seeking and granting of forgiveness and the declaration that Jesus' death on the cross covers all of our sins. That should be a regular refrain in your home. And this is true no matter what age your children are. A regular refrain in your home should be, Jesus has paid for all of your sins. You can screw it up as big as you want. Jesus has paid for it all. If you're standing on God's promises, you can say that. If you're standing on God's promises and you're calling your children to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're calling on your children to love him with everything they have, then you tell your children that their sin has been paid for. Their sin is done. The the penalty for their sin has been paid for. It's done. Jesus' death on the cross covers all of our sins. We should be reminding our children regularly, like Moses says in in Deuteronomy 6, that God has brought them, our children, out of the house of bondage. Okay, so third principle is apply the grace of discipline. Fourth principle, fourth and last principle. Create a place in your home. Have your home be a place for questions. In the text uh, in Deuteronomy 6, after the part that we read for the sermon, towards the end of the chapter, we have the children coming to the parents and asking questions. And so verse 20 says, when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes and the judgments with the Lord our God has commanded you? Well, what does this mean? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. Is your home a place for questions? In in this passage, the children come to the parents and ask why they live and practice and worship according to God's commands. Why, parents, do you live this way? Is the question these, these children are asking. But this assumes, the fact that these children come and ask this, assumes that they are already living in a context in which they are able to bring their questions and their concerns to their parents. Does that make sense? These children, in in order to come and ask these questions about faith and practice and loving God, there needs to already be a culture in the home of welcoming the questions of the children, the questions in your home. Parents need to welcome the seemingly endless stream of questions that come in the younger years especially. There needs to be a welcoming of that constant questioning. And parents need to welcome the inconveniently timed desire to discuss that comes in the older years. Usually for teens, high school age, the prime time to really ask questions and to have conversations with mom and dad is right about 1130. 
p.m. Is your home the kind of place where you are welcoming your children at your expense to come and ask whatever they want, to come and talk about whatever they want? And there really are times where you need to say, we can't talk about that right now. We need to move on to something else. But in general, you want your, pl- your home to be a place where your children trust you, where they come to you with their questions and desires and concerns. What, and there's a, there's a fundamental biblical truth that you are teaching your children when you do this. You want to show your children the grace of God in this way because he gave his life so that you could have access to him. Do your children have access to you? Do the people in your church have access to you? Where you can come to your brothers and sisters, where you can come to your elders at any time and bring your questions and your concerns. Are you approachable? What are you teaching your children about your Heavenly Father? What are you teaching your children about their Heavenly Father in the way that you receive or or not receive their questions? So these are the the four principles then, four ways in which we can cultivate Loyalty in our home, but loyalty that's not just about, it's not just about family loyalty. It's family loyalty for the purpose of, as a family, pursuing the love of the Lord. Eat together, keep short accounts, apply the grace of discipline, and create a place for questions. The context of this passage in Deuteronomy is love for God because of his love. He's the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt. And that's why he calls on them to love him. He loved them and brought them out of bondage so that they could love him. He loved us first so that we can love him. Romans, Paul tells us in Romans, Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. We obey God in, in these things because God has freed us. So does your obedience in this, does it smell like gratitude? Does it smell of gratitude to God for what he has done for you, or does it smell like checking boxes? The way that you parent your children, does it smell like you know the grace of God? Or does it smell like a long list of things to do? Because your children can smell it. Your children know when you're obeying what God has said, when you're doing family worship, when you're doing devotions, when you're, tr- when you're leading them in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, they know when you're doing it because you fear the Lord, because you've experienced the grace of God, and they know when you're doing it because you just need to check the boxes because this is what religious people do and we're reformed. They know the difference. They smell it. But God loved us when we were unlovely. His love sanctifies us. His love makes us lovely. Parents' godly love for their children does the same. And so when your children are unlovely, don't lose heart. Children, when you think your parents or your siblings are unlovely, when you find them annoying, when you find them mean, when you find your parents overbearing, don't despair, don't lose heart. 
remember that you were unlovely before God saved you. In your homes, when you see unloveliness, see it as the perfect opportunity to bestow love. Christ died for the ungodly. Imitate him. When Christian families and thus Christian societies go wrong, it is because they have not heeded the warning that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 12, which we didn't read, but I'll I'll read this to you now. Beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. When we forget the Lord and we fall away from obeying his word, at root it is because we have forgotten his grace. That's where sin comes from ultimately. That's where sin comes at its root, is a denial and a forgetfulness when it comes to God's grace, what he has done for you. When we neglect, we have neglected, when we find ourselves in this place where we forget his grace, we've neglected to give thanks for the undeserved deliverance from sin and death that he has given to us. And so, as you train up your children, as you live together in families, as you live together in community as a church, teach your children, teach one another the mercies of God. Remember the mercies of God yourself and teach them diligently to your children. Talk of his ways with joy and gladness of heart in everything that you do. Obedient, faithful, loyal homes are built on joy and thanksgiving for the manifold grace of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Father, teach us to apply these principles in our homes this week. Show us where we imitate you wrongly. Show us where we poorly represent you to our children, to one another. God, teach us to be overwhelmed by your grace. Overwhelm us by your grace so that we might then turn and spill that grace out upon those that you have entrusted into our care, those that you have put us into community with. And we know that this is only possible because of the grace and through the grace that you have given to us. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we just heard in our sermon this morning, our God is a God of generous and abundant bounty. He maintains the spark of life in our bodies. He gave it to us. He granted us an immortal soul. And he has sent Jesus to rescue our very souls from the sin that so easily ensnares us. As the author of Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have already laid aside our sin during our time of confession on our knees. We have been assured that God forgives us. Now we must run with endurance. What is needed to run with endurance? Well, many things, but especially strength and joy. We need strength to run and joy to remind us why we run. But our God, again, is a God of generous bounty, and so he doesn't call us to find this strength and this joy within ourselves. Rather, it is the very thing that he provides for us here at the table. Our Lord gives us his own body, the bread, to give our bodies strength. 
and he gives us his own blood, the wine, to fill our hearts with joy. With these two foods, we can faithfully run the race that is set before us this next week, and so that we can make it to another Lord's Day on the mountain with King Jesus, where he will again feed us. So come to the table and believe that you will find the strength and joy of your Lord. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Well, the charge is this. Go home to your families. Eat together every night this week that you can. Uh, discipline your children in love and joy. Keep short accounts and make a space in your home that's available. Whether you have little ones at home or whether you just have a home that is open for those who have questions, keep it open always. Be ready to answer anyone who has a question about the hope that is in you, especially your children. So receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.